I'm Brian Barrett from Off the Pike and coming to you for the local angle on FanDuel TV as well. After the Celtics with a second consecutive win over the Miami Heat, they are back in the series. It goes from 3 nothing to 3 games to 2. And the Celtics have a real opportunity at history here. First and foremost, there are five reasons I believe the Celtics are back in this series, okay? And we saw all of them on display in the game on Thursday night. And you're going to need all these things again to get that game six win in Miami coming up on Saturday. Number one, Jason Tatum was the best player on the floor. And this is now becoming a trend for Tatum. And I know he wasn't great until the final five minutes or so of that game six against Philadelphia. But Tatum has been really good in elimination games. If you look at the last two elimination games prior to the game five, game seven against the 76ers, we all know what happened there, the 51 points. Game four against Miami, he goes for 33 points. So in those two games prior to the game five, 84 points, 31 of 50, 62% from the field, 10 of 19, 52.6% from deep, 24 rebounds, and 12 assists. And look, he didn't have the crazy scoring outburst in this one. But he completely controlled the game. He finished 8 of 16 from the field, 11 assists, and the 11 rebounds. And now it's 18 assists in the last two games, in games four and games five. The thing that has happened here is he has completely figured out how to handle these double teams of the Miami Heat and how to attack mismatches in this series. The Celtics were getting shots just off his gravity and presence in this game. So let's think back to some of those doubles, right? So I'm just going to run through a couple of them in this game. So early in the game, he's doubled. He finds Al Horford. Al then finds Jalen. Jalen hits a wide open three to make it 9-5, which was necessary. They need to get Jalen going. That's a wide open corner three for Jalen. Then he was doubled. He finds Grant. Grant gets to the free throw line, makes one of two. Then Struess goes with Tatum, and it's not even as if Tatum had the ball. Tatum's just moving. Struess goes with him because of the attention Tatum is forcing the heat to put on him, and that leaves Derek White for a wide open three. He makes it 32-18 at the time. And then White gets another three off a Tatum double. Then he drives and he finds Al for a long two when he's double teamed again. Then he finds Smart on the short roll, right? Smart sets the screen. He rolls. Two guys blitz Tatum. Finds Marcus Smart. Smart with a really easy push shot to make it 67-48. And then again, he found Grant Williams for an open three on a double team. Then he drove. He was doubled and he finds Derek White for an open three. So just by my math alone, those plays, those are 20 points that the Celtics scored just off double teams of Jason Tatum. That is reading the defense. So Tatum is destroying the Heat defense right now by making the right decisions. And those are all points coming off double teams. And remember, he also had 21 points in the game. And this is just the double teams. This isn't just counting for when he drives hard and he finds an open guy for a dunk or finds an open guy for a shot. These are just the double teams. And this is something that cannot be underestimated. He has such a difficult job. He's running everything the Celtics do. And he did it to perfection in this game. He did it really well in game four. But he's really cracked the code on everything the Heat are trying to do to him defensively. So that's number one. Jason Tatum, by far the best player in the past two games. He's going to have to do it again in the game on Saturday. The second reason the Celtics won and they're back in this series is the guards were absolutely tremendous in game five. And I was not personally crazy about Jalen's game. I know he had a better game than he's had recently, which wouldn't be too difficult because he was really bad in the series up until game five. But I thought he forced a lot of shots in the third quarter, maybe just trying to get himself into rhythm. But he was not great in this game. But Derek White and Marcus Smart were flat out outstanding. So let's start with Derek White. 
what a difference a year makes with this guy. He has 24 points in game five. And if you just look at the three-point shooting from Derek White, if you go to the series last year against Miami, he was 7 of 21, so 33.3% of the series. And four of those makes came in game six. So in the other five games he played in, because he missed one due to the birth of his child, he hit just three total threes. And remember, it was not just he was missing threes, he was scared to shoot. And it sort of rendered the Celtics offense ineffective because the ball would just stop because he wouldn't shoot. Not anymore. Derek White has now hit at least three threes in each game of the series. And in that game five, how many threes did he hit? Six. Six of them. Derek White, six of eight from three-point territory. So now he is 18 of 31, 58.1% from deep. And the thing about it is that he's taken the 31 in the five games. So he has the confidence. He took 21 in six games last year. He's already taken 31 in this series. So it's confidence. Last year, he was afraid to shoot. And it messed up the Celtics offense. And now with Malcolm Brogdon dealing with this tear in the tendon between his elbow and his wrist that forced him to leave this game, did not return. You're going to need somebody else to hit these threes because Malcolm Brogdon was a top five three-point shooter in the league this season. Derek White clearly right now has stepped up and he's that guy. And we all know he brings a lot on the defensive side of the floor. Now, Marcus Smart. I really felt like he set the tone from the jump in this game. He ripped Bam out of bio, and then he found Tatum for an easy basket to make it two to nothing. Right away, he brought the defensive intensity. He finished with five steals. Like, this looked like Marcus Smart, the defensive player of the year. And a couple things that stick out to me about those steals. Let's get to, he had a steal on Jimmy, where this was just a really heads-up play by Marcus Smart. Duncan Robinson, he was the one thing they had going offensively, and they were doing that little dribble handoff game with them. Marcus sniffed that out, stole the ball from Jimmy, And they got free throws the other way. Now, he hit one of two. But nonetheless, it's just the point that he sniffed out the handoff. And then two plays later, he gets a steal on Bam and he finds Jason Tatum. Jason Tatum then hits Marcus for an open three. But that whole possession starts because of the steal that Marcus has on Bam Adebayo. Those are their two best players that Smart stole the ball from. And then offensively, he made four threes. And they weren't forced threes, right? Which sometimes Marcus Smart has the propensity to take some shots that you'd say, hey, Marcus, you probably shouldn't shoot that. But It's open threes. Two of them came off double teams from Jason Tatum. So that's just really smart by Marcus Smart to make the right decisions and not force anything. And then offensively, I just feel like he made a couple of hustle plays where he had an offensive rebound against the zone, which led to a wide open three for Jalen. And then Al Horford got switched on to Kyle Lowry in the post. Marcus is just like, okay, let me give it to the big man, even though he doesn't play in the post anymore. And what does Al Horford do? He gets a real easy dunk over Kyle Lowry. That's just smart basketball. And then he found Jalen Brown in semi-transition to make it 65-46, where it's just like, I got to get Jalen going, and he does that. And then he had a nice little floater off the Tatum double team. So just a really, really nice floor game from Marcus. So if you look at the guards, white and smart, they outscore Lowry and Struess 47-29. So plus 38 for the Celtics backcourt. And what we're seeing is this Vincent injury for Miami hurts them a lot worse than the Brogdon one does for the Celtics because obviously the Celtics have the depth of having Smart and having Derek White. And the Heat right now, they really don't have depth as it pertains to their guards with the hero injury. We'll see if he ever comes back for that game seven. And I know they'll say that Vincent's going to play in game six, but we'll see. He didn't play in game five and that turn looked really bad. And here's the problem for Miami. They have been really good with Vincent on the floor prior to game five. They had a plus 11.8 net rating. So they're outscoring teams by nearly 12 points per 100 possessions with Vincent on the floor. With Vincent off the floor, that number was at minus 10.9. 
So the on-off differential in terms of points per 100 possessions with Vincent was 10 point, or it was 22.7. So that's a massive number just in terms of the raw numbers, plus 34 with him on, minus 12 with him off prior to this game. So they need a healthy Vincent because they don't have enough playmaking and shooting without him. And Lowry, I think we can all agree, he looked absolutely cooked in game five. Okay, so the guards, Tatum, the guards, the third reason the Celtics won, and they need to keep doing this if they want to win the series, they brought the necessary effort defensively. And I referenced some of the smart steals, but how about Rob at the end of the first half, or I should say the end of the first quarter, he blocks Jimmy Butler on a three, like right in front of him, he blocks a three. You do not see that. 19 seconds left, you go the other way and you score. And then how about Grant? He got switched on to Kyle Lowry, which is a difficult matchup for a bigger guard, even though, like I said, Lowry is not the same player that he once was. But to stay with Lowry and then block his shot, that's a big play. And then some of the other things you just look at, this team was on a string. They were connected, and we've seen at times throughout this postseason, they haven't been, and they certainly were tonight. So if you look at the Heat in that game five, 97 points on 86 possessions, that's a 111.6 offensive rating. Only five teams this season were lower than 112. So that's horrendous. That is bad offense. And we know the Celtics are capable of this. If you look at it now, defensive rating when the Celtics hold a team south of 114, they are now 8-0 in the postseason. When it's north of 114, it's 1-8. And And by the way, now that south of 114 has increased to 9 because they won the game 5. So they've now done this 9 times. We have seen that they can bring this type of effort on the defensive side of the floor. So what it tells you is they can do this again. They just did it in back-to-back games. They can certainly do it again. They have the defensive personnel. It's never been an issue in terms of the personnel with the Celtics as it pertains to their defense. It's just been the effort, and it was clearly there in the Game 5. So that is massive. Okay, so that's the third reason, the defense. The fourth reason is just the fact that you look at the fact that the Celtics— It's not just Derek White shooting the threes. It's everybody else as well. They were 16 of 39 from deep. That's 41%. And it's not just because they're bombing threes, right? They want to get to that 40 number in terms of the attempts. They only got to 39, but they were good attempts. That's why they hit 16 of them, right? And there's a magic number for the three-point shooting as well. 13 or more, the Celtics are 10 and 2. And of course, as we alluded to, 16 in this game. When they hit 12 or fewer, they're 0 and 6. So they get to that magic number of the 13 tonight, and that's just the quality of them, right? That's a really high-quality shooting team when they're shooting in rhythm, and they were in Game 5. All right, a lot more coming up on the local angle. You'll hear from the guys from the Philly Special on James Harden, his future, and the Sixers coaching staff. Plus, Jason Goff will get you caught up on what's going on in Chicago, and our buddy John Jastrzemski will break down everything going on in New York. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC slim fit trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just... Once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com.
right, the local angle. Shout out to everybody over at FanDuel TV, checking us out here once a week on a Friday. You get the the, the recap from uh, Philly, from Boston, from New York, and of course here at the Full Go. Um, also, you can check us out Sundays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays right here, uh, courtesy of The Ringer. I'm sure you're hanging out with Spotify. So as I bring in Danny Parkins, of course, of Parkins and Spiegel fame, uh, Drive Time Radio here in the city of Chicago, 670 The Score. Uh, Danny, uh, thank you so much for jumping on, man. I appreciate you as always. This is the first time we've got a chance to do this. And, uh, you know, you you and I have had a uh, an interesting... Um, I guess, uh, relationship in terms of this business and, and, and going back to and how many jobs ago that I met you at the Super Bowl, I think it was in Phoenix, when I hear from yes, sir. across the conference room, I just hear golf and I'm like, oh shit, security's chasing me. And then I turn around and it's Danny Parkins uh, of Kansas City fame at the time, comes and takes over the airways here in the city of Chicago. Danny, uh, I will tell you this, man, uh, you and I have talked a lot about this business, have talked a lot about the station that I used to work at, that you now work at. And I've always told you in the end that, you know, you're out here doing your thing and I'm, and I'm happy uh, that you are motivating thought in the way that you are because um, you're, you're a talented, very, very talented cat. So as we get those things out of the way, um, which team is the least in the city of Chicago? Oh. <laughs> Come on, wait, we're talking sports? I thought we were going to go through the drama of our whole thing, oh, man. Dude, we can, hey, listen, uh, listen, listen. I'm down for whatever. You already know. I, I had Speaks on here. It was about, Tony, about what, a couple months ago, maybe a month and a half, something like that. I had Speaks on here, and I just knew there was, there was a whole bunch of that was going to end up on the cutting room floor that, that we weren't going to be able to throw out there. But uh, he was down with it. No, this is, this this is the big 246. This is the big 246 episode. We got to we're, we're, we're sticking to sports. <laughs> but who's the most <laughs> in Chicago? At least. No, no, no. I, 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 wanted, I, wanted to, I want people to feel good, you know. And, and by the way, I'm talking about, like, their, their, their championship uh, right. aspirations. I'm not talking about, like, the, the fan base that has the least amount of sex. Because we all know that. Right. We all know that's the Blackhawks. We all know yeah, that's the Blackhawks. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah, but, yeah you, know, you know, you know, hockey smells bad. But all right. So <laughs> shout I, out to all the sweaty I, ginger men that are going to be out here this summer with 98 sweaters on, by the way, tucked into those uh, Wranglers. Blackhawks are back, Danny. You're going to have to talk about d- them now. I oh, oh <laughs> over my dead rating. <laughs> it will not happen. It will not happen. Uh, I would say that the Cubs are the least because they are by far the best organization. Like they, they are the healthiest organization in this town. And I don't think even like Rick Hahn would disagree. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know that Jerry Reinsdorf would disagree if injected with true serum. Like they are just a big boy professional organization they invest in the pitching infrastructure at every level the hitting infrastructure at every level they have academies in multiple countries you know in the Dominican Republic and they they have pipelines into where all the young talent is they have an owner who is not Steve Cohen and is not the Padres like he's not the best by any means. And I got plenty of problems with some of the the politics and things have come out, but like he has made Wrigleyville 
a cash cow. He's a real estate developer. And so the money that they make from the baseball team is reinvested into the baseball team, right? They spent $300 million in free agent contracts this offseason, and they'll do it again every year of their championship window. And I know that because we saw it, yeah. right? <laughs> they paid Lester, they paid Hayward, they paid Zobris, they paid Darvish. Like every year that they were in their contention window, mm-hmm. they spent money in free agency. Now, some of them hit and some of them didn't, and that's how it works. But like everyone was like, oh, they just got their World Series and then they were going to stop spending. It's was like, no, that I was like never worried that they were going to stop spending yeah. once the team Not when you was good up again. All that <laughs> yeah, they just weren't going to spend when the team sucks. Like, why why spend money to make a 72-win team a 77-win team? Right. There's no reason to do that. So, like, they are by far the healthiest organization in Chicago. I don't think it's particularly close. And and then if you believe in Justin Fields, I think the Bears are second. Mm-hmm. And everybody else is fighting for last place. So I want to get back to that Cubs point because when Theo left, of course, there were people in the city who were like, all right, what what happens now? You know, Jed Hoyer finally gets the big seat. He gets to make all the decisions instead of suggestions. Uh, Are you surprised at how this transition has been handled, the way the word rebuild has been, uh, you know, taboo and, you know, David Ross now being called to the carpet, you know, because it's time now to start asking questions because it's time to start asking questions. So have you yeah. have you been surprised by anything when it comes to the transition from what Theo Epstein built with Jed Hoyer to now what Jed Hoyer is building by himself? So like, I think Jed is a very good communicator, mm-hmm. but Theo's the best I've ever seen. You know, so like there was going to be a drop off. So I think that he mishandled that, like, don't call it a rebuild, but it's a reload. But it's a, like, I think he like mishandled that a little bit. Yeah. But I, but I also think it's a little bit more complicated now. And I don't think your podcast audience like cares to get like terribly in the weeds of like the differences. But like back then, no, my podcast audience love had, weed. So go ahead. Yeah. They don't. Fair enough. Yeah. But back then if you got the worst the worst record you had the top pick and you could draft Chris Bryant and it was very smooth and if a player uh, left in free agency you knew exactly where your comp pick was going to be and it was like a pretty straightforward you tank you get top prospect you bank money you go forward now they're trying to like level the playing field and help with parity and it's just not some of the rules have changed where you're not guaranteed to get the top prospect if you are the worst team. And there are teams like the A's and the Royals that are just like the Cubs will never be that bad because of like the health of the organization, right? Mm -hmm. Like the the Royals do not invest in a director of pitching and a director of hitting like the Cubs do. So like the Cubs floor is just higher than the more developed infrastructure. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so they can't be as bad as they were when Theo and Jed took over. And that's what allowed them to get Chris Bryant and Kyle Schwarber and Albert Almora, who didn't really work out, but he was still on the team that, you know, won the World Series. So I think it's a little tougher this time to be that bad and build it up again. Um, And then so explaining it to the fans was trickier for Jed. And I think he mismanaged that. 
And overall, though, I think he's smart. I think he's good. Nobody's Theo. Theo's going to the Hall of Fame. And the David Ross thing, I'll be as critical on a manager as anybody. But they have no one in the bullpen who's good. This <laughs> he's year. not pressing the get someone out button. <laughs> right. Like Mark, Mark Leiter Jr. has been very, very good. Adbert Alzali has been very good until the last outing as we record this on Tuesday night. And literally everyone else has been bad. Well, you know, starters go six innings. Mm-hmm. And Jameson Tyone's been a disaster. And Hayden Wesneski, they demoted. So, like, three-fifths of the starting rotation has been great, right? Smiley has been mm-hmm. better than you could have possibly Stroman hoped for. Stroman has been fine. Mm-hmm. Stroman's been very, very mm-hmm. good. And Steele has been a top-ten pitcher in baseball. And so even with 60% of your rotation having like 90 percentile performances, you still need more than two guys in a bullpen and they don't have it. And they've had it the last couple of years because of that pitching infrastructure. And so I think that it's absolutely fair to start judging David Ross. And I wish that Christopher Morell would have broken camp with the team. Man. And <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, like this is like all that stuff I think is totally fair. Like I'm not saying that they're playing a perfect right. game, but the bullpen is the thing that is letting them down tremendously this year. But I also, as I ramble, I didn't think they were going to be as good as everybody thought. Vegas said they were a 77-win team. You know, they, st- they started 12-8, and eight, and so people got really excited because we haven't had a good team in Chicago in a couple of years in any sport. So 12-8, and eight, after spending $300 million in free agency, people got really f***ing excited. And I was like, eh, they, they don't have a lot of power. They don't have a ton of, like... And the top of that lineup was going to come back down to earth at some point, too, right? I mean... Right. They, they overachieved yeah. in April. And now they're under, they underachieved in May. And we'll see where it balances out. But I, I still think it's in play that they're going to be sellers at the deadline. Like, for one more cycle of trading Cody Bellinger trading a relief pitcher, if any of them end up being good. Like, you know, like, and then another offseason of spending, and then Brennan Davis and Pete Crow Armstrong, like their top prospects. Yeah, this is the bridge year to, to, the, to the exciting year. This is, this is what this is supposed ne- to be. And next year, their preseason win total needs to be like, 85 and a half, 87 and a half, right? Like there needs to be like real expectations for the Cubs on opening day next year. This is, this is like, yeah, the bridge year. This is like, if everything goes well, it's like the 2015 Cubs, like ahead of schedule, everything clicked, but that team won 97 fucking games like that. That just doesn't happen, you know? So I think that this team will likely end up around what their Vegas number was like a high seventies win team that sold off some pieces at the deadline and hopefully played some entertaining baseball in August. And that'll, that's, that's what and that'll conclude our baseball talk here on the full go podcast. Yeah, good. This is, yeah, shout good. out to the local and, and the good people over at FanDuel TV, because I'm not going to bore you with the, what the hell the white Sox are doing because it really doesn't matter good. right now. 
because everybody's going to be traded at some point and we can start this thing on over and the White Sox apathy fan base. I think that's I think that's what we're going to be from here on out. The, we're not even going to be called White Sox fans. We're going to be called the White Sox apathy fan base. We will move on once we get a new group of people to abhor because this thing is not feeling good at the time. Hello and welcome to the Ringers Philly special. This segment brought to you live on Fandle TV. So you better be watching. You better be following the Ringer and Fandle TV on socials to see the schedule for the local angle out every single week. I am not the usual voice here at the top of the show. I am not Shilkapadia. I am Ben Solak, joined by a good buddy who I've not yet shared the airwaves with on Philly special. Raheem Palmer. Raheem, thanks for jumping on. Always on. I mean, we haven't we haven't even spoken and and done done this before, so it's always yeah. always good for. Last me time fans. we were chatting, we were chatting about NFL betting angles way back in, in the beginning of the run, where you hit uh, the NFL season, you go into the NBA season, and it's just uh, nose to the grindstone making money. Are you a are you a big MLB better? I don't know this about you. Do you do you hate the baseball season at all, or is this your your off time? So last year I was betting like MLB majorly. Like I mean, yeah. it was so lucrative. Like. I was like living in a Vegas hotel last year during baseball season <laughs> and just betting outlandish amounts of money. So um, um, I'm not really betting right now. Um, I'm kind of like on a on a high up, hiatus. I'm just focusing on NBA, but I'm probably going right. to jump in the MLB at some point. I uh, for the fourth time in four games, I bet on the heat last night and it finally it finally came back to bite me in the butt. But I don't mind the fact that I'm going three one fading the Celtics. It certainly feels good as a little bit of a revenge tour, which our, uh, our topic for FanDuel TV today is these Philadelphia 76ers who, I will say, I would have liked to have beaten the Celtics. A nice consolation prize is watching themselves embarrass themselves on a more national stage to the Miami Heat and Jimmy Butler, whom I still hold dearly. Jimmy, obviously, uh, out of Philly a few years ago. Now the question is James Harden, uh, the star point guard for the Sixers, who was apparently a big part in Doc Rivers being uh, fired for the Sixers head coaching job. Pretty much halfway through the season, you already heard rumors that Harden might be looking to go back to Houston, kind of a return to the Rockets. Brian Windhorst of ESPN reports yesterday that if uh, he had to uh, read the tea leaves, he's not necessarily sourcing it, but just off of his his read of the room, Harden interesting the Rockets might be more of a leverage play. It might be more of an opportunity to try to get a larger contract and a bigger contract and a larger contract out of the Sixers or maybe a third unknown team. And so when you look at the Sixers and James Harden, it's a two-part question. One, should they want him back? And two, will he come back if they want him? Okay, this is tough just because if you ask me, James Harden, I mean, you don't want to pay James Harden $200 million for the next four years. Here's a guy yes. who scored zero points in the fourth quarter through games five through seven. However, we all know giving how me, Giving me works. just shaky looks back to those Ben Simmons fourth quarter graphs from, from, from the last playoff stretch for the Sixers. Those are the Hawks games. Yeah, yeah, That's uh, We don't like fourth quarter scoring. Uh, uh, s- summaries here in Philadelphia 76ers land. It gives us the heebie-jeebies. Yeah, but it, I mean, we all know how the NBA works. The NBA works is that you gotta have the asset because if you lose a guy like James Harden for nothing and you're still not under the cap, you're in a tough position. So I think they're forced to just kind of just go all in and say, you know what, we're gonna sign James Harden and, and you know, hopefully it works. But it, it appears as though he's, he's dead set on, on going back to Houston. Yeah, so he's got he's got the player option, right? Which means that he has the ability to kind of get in or get out if he wants to. And I in terms of him dead set on getting back to Houston, 
I could see him dead set on getting as much money as possible over this kind of the, the, the twilight of his career, right? He's turning 34 in a couple of months and Houston being the option for that, right? Where he's just going to be able to get more out of them than he would get out of Philadelphia. I'm inclined to believe he's interested in like actually re- remaining on a championship caliber roster with a championship caliber team, if only because that's what he did when he initially went to Houston and then went to Brooklyn and then in Philadelphia, like all of these teams have been teams that have been built to be contenders. They've been built around stars to make a run. So presumably he has some interest in that. But then again, it is James Harden in the playoffs. And every year you watch him in the playoffs, you start asking yourself, how much does this guy really care about winning playoff basketball games? Because he doesn't seem to have that clutch aspect to his game. He doesn't seem to have that killer aspect to his game that we certainly saw on display from Jason Tatum late in the series. And then have seen on display from Jimmy Butler and Nicole Jokic pretty much the entire playoffs. These guys finish games and Harden just never seems particularly interested in that. So it's difficult. I, I'm not a hundred percent convinced that Harden's overall objective is like, I got to return to Houston. I'm not a hundred percent convinced his overall objective is I got to make the most money possible. I'm certainly not a hundred percent convinced his overall objective is I got to try to get a championship under my belt before my career ends. It's very hard to nail down what he wants and so it's very difficult to figure out kind of what his side of this might end up looking like when it comes to a reunion with the, with the Sixers. You know, when I look at James Harden, I see somebody who, and I, I want to give Harden some credit on this, because when he came to the Sixers, he sacrificed a lot. He took less than the max. He mm-hmm. also opted to not play his style of play. And we all know James Harden's style of play is the heliocentric style of play to where he controls the ball on every possession. And you saw his stats actually go down. And the one thing about James Harden is that if you ask me, he had the better series than Joel Embiid. I mean, he won games one and and, and four. Like, he won those games. So when James Harden performed, the Sixers won. So I think on some aspects, he might feel as though he's better than Joel Embiid. Um, And maybe he's not saying this, but I'm pretty sure he feels this way because – I mean, we saw we saw it in the playoffs. Um, Joel Embiid was the number one guy, and he didn't perform like a number one guy. And, you know, the one thing about James Harden, he has ties to the community in Houston. Um, obviously, he likes the weather. Obviously, this yeah. is a guy who likes to party. He likes strip clubs. He, he likes to go out. He likes the social vibrancy of what you can get in Houston over Philadelphia. And as somebody who, you know, I've lived in Philly for much of my life. Um, I went to school here. I was a DJ here. Um, you know, I was like on the social scene heavy. Other cities have much more to offer. And this is an L.A. guy who likes to go out and party heavy. So I just think as much as he loves Maury and as much as he wants to compete for a championship. Daryl Maury can't offer him the city of Houston and it can't offer him, you know, no state taxes. So I think Philly is fighting an uphill battle in that regard, especially because. I think he's probably looking at the landscape and he's looking at the Celtics and he's looking at teams like, you know, Denver Nuggets. He's looking at the Miami Heat and he's wondering if he truly can compete for a championship here. And if he can't get a championship here, he might as well live in the city that he wants to live in and play a style of basketball that he wants to to play Um, in addition to getting the money that he wants. Yeah. So let's let's look at this from the other perspective. Let's look at this from the Sixers perspective, because, okay. It might be tough to give Harden what he wants, such as to get him back in the building. I want to ask, okay, well, like, should the Sixers want Harden back? Which is kind of like a ridiculous thing to ask about a player who right now in the Ringer NBA rankings is 20, like is one of the top 20 players in the NBA. You generally want to get those dudes back. 
But for Philadelphia now, with so many seasons of second-round playoff appearances and second-round playoff exits, now with a uh, new head coach coming into the building, who we don't know just yet, and that obviously makes figuring out the Harden situation a little trickier, there's a warranted question of, okay, are they at a stage where they should be building for veteran players, established players, players in or maybe a little past their prime in the attempt to build a, a, a new contender around Joel Embiid, once again, trying to find this elusive championship team around Joel Embiid, or should they be prioritizing youth? Should they be prioritizing finding cap space and finding draft picks and, and executing what's not like a full tear down and rebuild, but perhaps a soft reload, try to figure out, okay, who are going to be our next generation of stars now that we tried to have a generation of stars with Ben Simmons, Marco Foltz, and Joel Embiid and simply completely whiffed in that effort. And so when you think about the Sixers bringing James Harden back, should they be at a point where they kind of say, all right, if he's over 30 and he's hitting the max, it's just not for us right now. We're not that team. You know, see, it's a tough situation just because you still yeah. have the MVP and Joel Embiid. Yeah. You want to maximize his years because, I mean, we're at a point now where I think we're going to see unprecedented player movement over the next, you know, 12 to 24 months. And Joel Embiid is at that point where if you don't prove that you can build a contender around him, he's going to ask for a trade. So you want to try to maximize that first and foremost. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. the Sixers just find themselves in a tough spot. I think obviously they have Tobias's um, expiring contract. So maybe they might want to move him. I think if you can bring Harden back, you move Tobias, you try to make some other moves. I think that's what you, you have to do first because I just right. it's tough to get a player as good as Joel Embiid. I mean, like we saw it with Allen Iverson. We didn't have another star player for about another 10, 15 years. So you kind of have to you owe it to the fans and you owe it to, you know, the organization to do your due diligence and trying to build a winner around Joel Embiid first and foremost. Uh, last Sixers thing I want to hear from you, Raheem. You look at this list of potential uh, coaching hires, right? The list for the Sixers interviews, and you see Monty Williams, and you see uh, 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 Frank Vogel, you see Nick Nurse, right? Uh, who are you looking at on, on this list? Mike Budenholzer, Sam Castle, Mark D'Antoni, God forbid, uh, that you're excited about most for the Sixers. Who do you want to see get the job? I'm always in favor of like a new guy. Um, I, I, th- I just think we've seen, you know, what the other guys have to offer. I can tell you right now, I'm not really high on Monty Williams. Um, I would like to see Sam Cassell get a shot, but I mean, I think you can never lose. I think when it comes to some of these veteran coaches, one of the reasons why you always see this musical chair of of veteran coaches is because you kind of know that you're going to get a competent head coach. I mean, there's, I mean, you could hire a new head coach and you can get, you know, Steven Stylus. I mean, and you know, it's, I mean, that's not the, you know, to dump on them, but I mean, you saw that. that Tough Steven team. Silas stray here on, on, on FanDuel <laughs> TV, just catching it out of nowhere. Yeah. I mean, I don't mean to dump on them, but I mean, you saw that that Rockets franchise wasn't really competent. So, I mean, mm-hmm. as much as I wasn't really a fan of the Doc hire, I mean, the Sixers were a competent team. I mean, this is a team that pretty much won 50 games. So um, if I had to choose somebody, I mean, I definitely would probably go with Nick Nurse or um, Frank Vogel, but I, I'm always in favor of like giving new blood a shot because I mean, look, you saw what happened when the Golden State Warriors hired Steve Kerr. I mean, this is a guy who you know worked in the front office and he he turned that franchise around. I know people are gonna say you know Mark Jackson deserved a lot of credit, which he did, but under Mark Jackson they were just 13th in offense, and Steve Kerr with the motion offense and and pulling Steph Curry off the ball and you know benching Andre Iguodala, having him be a sixth man. 
he unlocked that offense and they became one of the best offenses in NBA history under Steve Kerr. Um, so I'm always in favor of giving new blood a shot. Yeah, they need they need to I mean, make an aggressive hire. They need to, to shake things up a little bit because they need a competitive edge that is not going to be afforded by somebody with the same tried and true ideas. Like they, they can't bring back Doc and be like, oh, if we're just a little bit better coaching. We'll get over the hump. No, they need something a little more, I think, uh, disruptive than that. Welcome back to The Local Angle. This is J.J. Jalanchi-Stremski, the host of New York, New York. And the big news in town over the last 48 to 72 hours that has really become bulletin board, bar stool, barbershop, all sorts of combo galore across the Big Apple and across the tri-state area. It is official now. And we all knew it was official over the last two years, but now it's official official that Carmelo Anthony has officially decided to hang him up. And Carmelo is now done as an NBA player. His career has officially come to a close. And I think it's fair to say Carmelo Anthony will go down as one of the most polarizing athletes in New York sports over the last 25 to 30 years. Carmelo obviously had an illustrious career. It started at my alma mater, Syracuse, in 2003. And it's important to realize that in 2003, when Carmelo was the one and done that he was, that won Jim Beheim his only national championship, that was not the norm in college basketball. You had Durant after the fact. You had Zion Williamson after the fact. Carmelo was really the first, holy moly, this guy is ready to go and play in the association after just one year. Wild in college. Masterful college player. Then he goes to the Denver Nuggets, and he immediately makes the playoffs. He goes to the playoffs every year, loses a lot in the first round. But the argument always with Carmelo in Denver, and it was a fair one, was that if you looked at the teams he lost to in the respective series that were played, in most cases, Carmelo Anthony and his teams lost to the better team. Maybe there's one or two instances where you'd say otherwise, but for the most part in Denver, that was the case. Melo put up a ton of numbers. He's one of the most exquisite scorers that I've seen in my years of watching the NBA. And 2008, 2009 was the peak for him in Denver. Chauncey Billups, instead of Allen Iverson, perfect fit. Passed first point guard. Took on that mantle of leadership. Mel was able to cook and do his thing. Denver made it to the Western Conference Finals. They had a good run against Kobe, Gasell, and the Los Angeles Lakers. Fell short. And that was kind of the peak of what that Nuggets team was going to be able to achieve. So this is where the polarizing conversation comes in with Carmelo Anthony. Because I preface everything I said about his career in acknowledging and realizing he accomplished a lot before he put on a New York Knickerbocker uniform. But the reason to me in New York City, Carmelo, as a Nick, has this polarizing legacy is because of the mixed bag in many ways that his career provided in New York. 
statistically speaking, there's no getting around what Carmelo Anthony brought to the Knicks. He was a guy who could get buckets whenever he wanted. He set the MSG scoring record back in 2013, 2014, that performance against Charlotte. And definitely took the Knicks and put them back on the map when they had gone basically a decade without any sort of relevance. But when Carmelo Anthony came to the Knicks and I'm Coming Home was blasting at MSG and it was blasting out of every New York stereo, I think Knicks fans expected more from a winning perspective than what they got with his teams. Made the playoffs three times. That's it. Only won one playoff series against the aging Boston Celtics. And in many ways, the lasting image of Carmelo Anthony in a Nick uniform is in the second round against the Indiana Pacers. He's having a monster game six. The Knicks down three to two in a series, a storming back. Iman Shumpert's hit a ton of threes. And the Knicks were up two. They might have been up four. I don't remember what the sequence was. They were up in the game. Melo going to the rack gets stuffed by Roy Hibbert. And that stuff, rather symbolic of the end of the relevance of Carmelo Anthony's teams in meaningful NBA postseason action. Because the Knicks did not get to the playoffs again until the team did it in 2020-2021. Think about that for a minute. You had three extra years where Carmelo Anthony was a part of your team was the number one player, and the Knicks did not make the playoffs. Where in the NBA, it seems pretty damn easy to make the playoffs when eight teams are going. That's the complicated nature of Carmelo's legacy. Exquisite score. Put up the numbers. You give him credit for embracing the pressure and the magnitude of wanting to play in New York when a lot of other players shied away from that sort of pressure. Melo did not. You got to respect him like crazy for it. But I also think you have to be fair and realize Carmelo Anthony, as terrific a player as he was, was just going to be really difficult for him to be the number one player on a championship team that was not perfectly constructed, meaning the team needed to fit around the big star. And if it didn't, it wasn't going to work. And the Knicks showed you that. And there's definitely some sympathy involved for Carmelo Anthony in this regard. The idea of Phil Jackson coming in, Phil Jackson blowing up the team, poor roster management over that period of time, some bad trades, some bad draft picks, you name it. But I think something that eats at the Nick fan that does not like Carmelo Anthony, you go back to that trade, 2010, 2011. Everyone knew Carmelo Anthony wanted to be a Nick. But CBA was changing. He wanted to get his money. He didn't wait it out. He forced the Knicks' hand. And the Knicks basically had to destroy the entire roster, plus all the draft picks they had, in order to make it work. Still a trade you would make. It's not like the Knicks gave up the moon and the stars and Danilo Gallinari and Wilson Chandler or whoever, Felton, who I ended up getting back two years later. But it kind of put them in a real tough predicament to go and do anything else. 
There's a whole lot of what if with Carmelo in New York. What if they would have gotten their hands on Chris Paul? What if they had saved their amnesty for Amari Stoudemire? Like, there are a lot of what-if questions you ask with that regime over that period of time. But in reality, was Carmelo Anthony ever winning an Eastern Conference championship or an NBA Finals with LeBron James and the Miami Heat doing their thing? The answer is a resounding no. At least the way I see it. So... Around town over the last few days, a lot of these conversations, of course, have been brought back up, and that's what we love doing. But I think the question that everybody wants answered, should Carmelo Anthony have his number retired in the rafters of Madison Square Garden? My answer to this question is a complicated one because it's a yes, but there's a major asterisk. He needs company. Bernard King, who is one of the great scorers of the 1980s, who was a phenomenal New York basketball talent, if Carmelo Anthony's number is getting retired, well, my goodness, Bernard King better be right there with him. It's really as simple as that. I'm all for Melo getting his number retired. He wanted to be a Knicks. He put up elite statistical seasons. He was an all-NBA player. He was an all-star a bunch of those years. You can tell me on that easily. Carmelo Anthony getting his due up at Madison Square Garden. But you can't sit there and tell me, oh, Carmelo is going to get his number retired, but Bernard King is not going to have his number retired. So the Knicks need to write that wrong. So it had me thinking, top five most deserving retired numbers to be in New York sports at the moment. Now, the Yankees have retired a zillion numbers. The Mets are well behind that. They don't have the same history as the Yankees. They're starting to add more in the Steve Cohen regime. The Knicks, for the most part, take care of their guys. The Rangers, for the most part, take care of their guys. Same with the Giants. Jets, we'll get to, but you get my drift. I put together a top five list of guys to me who deserve their number to be retired in the respective New York sports. And I'm going to go from one to five. Number one is an easy one for me. The captain of the New York Mets, David Wright, needs his number retired. Played for the team for over a decade. Ton of all-star game appearances. Captain of the team. Led a team to the 2015 World Series. Like, you think about true blue Met. You think about a guy who was there from start to finish. His body betrayed him, but he still put up some elite-level years. Was on a Hall of Fame trajectory much like Don Mattingly before his injuries really took their toll and they changed City Field and whatnot. David Wright is number one on my list. Number two on my list is CC Sabathia for the New York Yankees. He will be a Hall of Famer. I think he will be a first ballot Hall of Famer. Spent a decade with the franchise. Was a part of their last championship team in 2009. Was the LCS MVP of that championship team. Was a leader. There's no doubt CC and number 52 should be out Monument Park. Number three kind of goes side by side what we're talking about. Bernard King and Carmelo Anthony are a package deal. Either both get retired or neither gets retired. Simple as that. I think the Knicks should honor both legendary scorers and put them up with the likes of Clyde and Earl the Pearl and Patrick Ewing. I think Carmelo and Bernard King or worthy of that honor. And then the last guy I'm going to give you, and I don't think there's a chance in hell the Yankees will do this, but Alex Rodriguez 
despite the steroids, should have his number in Monument Park. Two MVPs, and much like CeCe, the last World Series championship for the New York Yankees does not happen if number 13 is not a major part of the equation. And I get he embarrassed the organization. He made a fool of the organization. They're probably going to hold that against him. I'm not going to do that. I'm appreciative for what he ended up bringing to the team, despite a very polarizing legacy. Maybe even more polarizing than the one Carmelo Anthony had in his tenure in New York. So David Wright, C.C. Sabathia, Bernard King, Carmelo Anthony, and Alex Rodriguez. A couple of those numbers are going to be retired. Remember, if they retire Carmelo, Bernard King better be there. That'll do it for our presentation here of the local angle for Chicago and Philly and Boston. New York wrapping it up. We'll see you next week. Be good, everybody.